Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Dance podcast. I'm your host, Takia Nura Amin. What does it mean for a contemporary scholar to be trusted with the unfinished autobiography of a dance legend? How does one ensure that the integrity of their research matches the depth of life experience embodied in their subject's narrative? Who is best served by the sharing of the untold stories of those whose narratives have been historically marginalized? And what does it mean for today's dancers to learn about those who have paved the way for them under harsh and unjust circumstances? These were the questions I had in mind when I was lucky enough to interview historian and dancer Yael Tamar Lewin, author of Night's Dancer, The Life of Janet Collins, a soaring work that includes Miss Collins' unfinished autobiography. Born in 1917, Janet Collins was raised in Los Angeles and has the historic distinction of being the first African-American prima ballerina at the Metropolitan Opera. A dancer with demonstrable skill in both ballet and modern dance vocabularies, Janet's career included performances on television, in film, and on Broadway. Despite her triumphs as an artist, Miss Collins faced intense racial bias throughout her career as a dancer, choreographer, and teacher. An accomplished painter and deeply spiritual person, Janet's story is tenderly and meticulously recounted in both her own words and through Miss Lewin's wonderful research. The book stands as a testament to any dancer today wishing to fulfill their artistic potential in a world that can be unwelcoming and cold. Notably, Yael's research on Collins began during her own undergraduate studies and took shape over several years, during which a trusting relationship budded between subject and author. This model of scholarship and the resulting work shares lessons on how to handle the narrative of a beloved artist with care. Yael Tamar Lewin is a writer, editor, choreographer, and alternative medicine practitioner. She holds undergraduate and graduate degrees from Barnard College and Columbia University and has performed with several dance companies, including her own. She lives in New York. Okay. Well, listeners, I am excited today to be interviewing dance historian, writer, and dancer Yael Lewin, who has been so gracious to agree to do this interview with me about her wonderful book, Night's Dancer, The Life of Janet Collins. So, Yael, on behalf of the New Books Network and the Dance Channel, I just want to thank you so much for giving us your time today. Of course. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I do have some questions. We're going to just get right into those. I wanted to know, when did you first become interested in Janet Collins' work? And what led you to work on and write the book project at this time? Well, I first became interested in the work of Janet Collins when I was a senior at Barnard College. I needed a thesis topic for my dance major, uh, and the person brought in to advise my senior seminar on thesis topics – 
had asked all of us what our interests were. And I was interested in the connection between dance and opera because my mother is an opera coach and I was uh, always very interested in the um, connection between the two. So I told our advisor, Barbara Palsy, and she said, what about Janet Collins? And I said, who? Uh, And that led to my senior dance thesis on Janet. Uh, Later, after graduate school at Columbia University, I felt that I had to publish something or another. Um, And I turned to my various papers, and my thesis on Janet stood out as being possibly something I could work with. So that became a feature article for Dance Magazine. And after that, I had sent the article to Janet, And apparently she must have liked it because she called her family and asked them to contact me about writing the full-fledged book. Uh, And I seem to have said yes. (laughs) So here we are today. Oh, that's amazing. So it seems like a line of inquiry that started for you as an undergraduate student with an interest in dance and opera is something that really wove itself throughout the rest of your, you know, sort of the early beginnings of your writing career. Well, it really did. And uh, first of all, this does show that no college paper is necessarily written in vain. Sometimes they, they amount to something, and uh, sometimes they they stay with you for much longer than you really want them to. But in this case, Janet was wonderful company. And because the project expanded from a very small version to larger and larger and larger, I, I found more and more layers of her life to explore. So it really wasn't repetitive work over the years, but uh, just an unfolding of her life and career and uh, personality. So um, it really was quite a wonderful adventure. Well, that sounds great. Can you talk to us about any unique challenges you faced in developing the book? Um, I know for myself as an emerging scholar, sometimes when you go to a bookstore and you see the dance books on the shelf, they almost seem like magic, you know, like Mm -hmm. some brilliant person is in their office sort of churning out their solitary genius, and suddenly the book is done. So (laughs) I know I don't think there is any solitary genius. I think think we all all sit sit around and and work much harder than we want to. Um, The the unique challenges really were, first of all, uh, Janet was a very private and sensitive person. So I was faced with the challenge of revealing information about someone who really preferred to um, keep many details under her hat. In some cases, also, she could not remember things, so you're faced with the challenge of time going by. Uh, once she said to me, Yael, you're expecting me to remember back 50 years, and I said, yes. <laughs> uh, time is a very big challenge when you write these kinds of books and you're lucky enough to interview live subjects, and you're dealing with uh, decades of their life that happened far enough in the past. Well, sometimes uh, human memory gets in the way, and that is a formidable challenge. Um, things they could have remembered years before are really, really lost in that case. And you have to count on interviews with other people to reconstruct what really happened. So you have the challenge of human memory. You have the challenge of uh, your book subjects, privacy and sensitivity. Uh, You also have a third challenge, which is lack of documentation, especially when you deal with uh, uh, 
matters in the previous century and so forth. Now it's the computer age, and it's a lot easier for us to document things. Uh, Janet did preserve some of her archives very well, but it was still a drop in the bucket, and there were a lot of gaps in information that I needed to fill in. Uh, so the lack of documentation was also rather formidable, and um, it, it did make it possible for me to do a lot of original research, but still, um, it could be mind-boggling at times. I'm sure, I'm sure. So given that she was, um, as you mentioned, a sensitive a sort of private subject, can you talk about any specific challenges you might have faced in terms of gaining access to the unfinished autobiography? Well, I was extremely lucky because in that regard, uh, there were no challenges gaining access to what she had already written. The big challenge was getting her to continue writing. Okay. Uh, when when she wanted this project to happen, she knew that she would be um, handing over the pages that she had written, and she continued to write uh, a little bit after she started working with me. But then she got too unwell to continue, and of course, it's it's like installments in a magazine, and you want to know what's going to happen next. And so when the packages when the packages stopped coming of of the Xerox pages of what she had written. Uh, you know, you, you, you want to know how the story's going to continue. Uh, so I, I begged her to keep writing, and she just couldn't. That was a challenge. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, I think it's one of the unique and wonderful aspects of the book, and I do appreciate, you know, um, as someone with a deep interest in dance history, you, you know, going through whatever challenges or difficulties there were, as you stated, to really bring us a really unique and powerful contribution to dance history and dance studies. So thank you so much for that. I ask the one to be able to that. Well, I think, I think primary source material is so important, and uh, it's really rare that you have the benefit uh, when you write a biography of the person's own words, and to me it just made the entire project so much more well-rounded. Um, and, of, of course, uh, the autobiographical sections uh, were lightly edited in terms of what was or what wasn't uh, well-written enough or or anything that, that needed a little chronological rearranging, but... Uh, I think the historical value of it is really immeasurable. Now, who would you say is the intended audience for this book? Who is this book really for? Well, hopefully as many people as possible. You have, of course, the the dance uh, community, ranging from uh, very savvy, knowledgeable academics to the average dance student. Um, and so at least people with a dance background would be able to pick the book up and uh, get enough out of it. Um, and then, of course, you, you have uh, other populations, such as the African-American population, uh, in terms of whether uh, this book provides uh, enough historical and, and cultural insight uh, for that community and um you know, one can only hope that people who might not necessarily be interested in dance will pick the book up anyway because they do want to find out more about uh, what was going on in, in their cultural heritage, uh, especially in 20th century America. Uh, and, of course, Janet was female, and sometimes I think this is uh, an overlooked point, um, 
women studies scholars, again, would be the, the academics here, but I'd like to think that any woman who needs a powerful role model uh, can look at Janet's story and just be very inspired about what women can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and anybody who likes to read nonfiction, of course, you know, if people like biographies, hopefully this is one that will appeal to them, too. Mm-hmm. I think that's really interesting because when I was reading the book and, you know, first researching about the book, and then when I got it in my hands, first of all, the book is really beautiful. It's oh, beautiful, thank you. So anyone who likes books, I think, would enjoy, you know, the text for its aesthetic qualities for sure. Mm-hmm. But also, um, of course, those interested in African African American studies, um, those interested in the sort of 20th century American dance landscape, women's studies scholars, anyone interested in ballet or opera. I mean, I just think that this book has such a wide reach and certainly not to be overlooked. Its quality, um, the quality of the writing is really, really wonderful, but also what you noted about Janet being a really inspirational figure, being a really encouraging figure, um, I think that's something not to be overlooked. Well, I think there there is such a shortage of of role models, uh, and especially for African American dancers today. Um, and so, I, I hope first and foremost that she can be seen that way as as somebody who not just left a wonderful legacy, but um, someone who is a role model that can be looked up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that that's really something that's so critical for me. Now, for for students of dance history who might be familiar with Janet, you know, sort of in name only, you know, when I was an undergraduate dance student, I knew Janet Collins was, you know, prima ballerina at the Metropolitan Opera House in the early 1950s. That was sort of, if someone had asked me on the spot, that would have been the, the one sentence that I could have shared. So I wanted to ask you, what is the most surprising thing that students of dance history who are familiar with that little one sentence about Janet, what do you think is the most surprising thing they might find about her in the book? Well, first of all, how well-rounded she was. Uh, Her career really is quite extraordinary because she appeared in everything uh, from, uh, oh gosh, from being an adagio dancer uh, as, uh, as as a teenager, being in an adagio act, to performing with Lester Horton and Catherine Dunham, uh, and also in uh, some musical theater as well. And then she was on Broadway, and then she was also a, a concert dancer, and she was also a ballerina. And, you know, uh, it, it really boggles the mind when you look at how many different things she was able to do um, not all dancers are that well-rounded and can excel in so many different aspects. Uh, the other thing is that she was a trained visual artist, and many people are certainly not aware of, and to have that kind of almost excessive talent in terms of being as brilliant as she was in her dancing, and then also, uh, on the other hand, being a really wonderful, gifted visual artist as well, uh, it gives it yet another aspect to her. So uh, I, I hope that students of dance history can, can take that all in and, and not be too overwhelmed because not not all of the people you read about 
in dance history books and so forth uh, really were that successful in, in accomplishing uh, such, such, such a, a well-rounded, uh, such a well-rounded career. You know, I think that's a really important point. As someone who teaches undergraduates and who will be teaching a dance history course in the spring, one of the things that I try to get my students to understand is that, you know, sometimes when we teach dance history, we present all of these people as if they were each 80 feet tall, sort of, mm-hmm. you know, uh, divorced from or devoid of the, so- the social and political context in which their work really emerged. And one of the things that I love about that book, about your book, is that you really bring that point home. You know, we try to encourage the students to understand that, yes, you know, what you do in the studio is important, but it's critically important that you engage other interests, that you read, that you pursue opportunities to share your talent broadly, Mm -hmm. that you are aware of what's happening around you, you know, and trying to get them to understand that these people who emerge as sort of the names that we talk about in dance history were, for the most part, people who were well-rounded, connected, aware, and engaging beyond what was happening just in the studio space. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely, and uh, also the lesson is to really make sure you are trained in more than one thing. Janet was as proficient in ballet as she was in modern dance, and and uh, she felt that you 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 really needed um, you you really needed to be proficient in both. Mhm, mhm, mhm. That's wonderful. I wanted to ask you, as a dance historian. Why do you think it's critically important to bring forward the work of dance artists of color? I mean, you hinted earlier at, you know, hoping that the book would be an inspiration for dancers of color in particular. So why do you think it's critically important to bring forward those narratives in contemporary dance scholarship? Well, uh, first of all, I think there is is, uh, certainly still enough of a population out there of dance students uh who do not have those role models uh any any uh any dancers of color out there who may feel intimidated by walking into your average dance class and uh again not having anybody to keep in mind as as their forerunner and again whether you're thinking of the current generation of uh, dance artists of color in terms of uh, mainstream like Alvin Ailey or if you're going to go all the way back to Pearl Primus, uh, again, it's important to keep putting forward on stage and in dance classes and in textbooks the people who are able to serve as the role models for the upcoming dancers of today because uh, whether whether they like it or not, it's uh it's still it's still a very underserved population in that area uh i think that there are companies that are successful like alvin ailey in terms of they tour a lot people have a lot of opportunity to see them and to get inspired by them um but i think that it is just as critical to preserve and bring forward the dance artists of color from older generations uh, because so many of the dancers today don't know that there were those previous generations. Not that they think necessarily that, that everything begins and ends with Alvin Ailey, um, but uh, history is not always passed on. 
And I think there's something more profound in knowing that, my goodness, in the 1950s already, there was a black ballet dancer. Um, so uh, to, to retrieve those people from those earlier decades, uh, it, it gives more of a sense of a lineage that I think the dancers today can be part of, if, if that makes sense to you. Um, otherwise, we're just dealing with what we've got in the 21st century, and you don't feel as much that you are part of that lineage when you know that you had role models stretching all the way back into those earlier decades. Um, then there, then there is something especially powerful, I think. I think so, and I thank you for bringing that forward. It's almost the idea that choosing to have a life in dance means stepping into a lineage where you're choosing to live you know, live in the world intentionally in an embodied way. Yeah, and, and, and acquiring a family tree almost, um, you know, and I, I think so many of the struggling dancers today don't have that sense of it. They they only know what's, what's around them and maybe the people they see on stage, but, um, you know, I, I don't think they feel that support from a... Uh, from a family tree, as it were, stretching all the way back into the 20th century. Thank you for that. That's really, really inspiring, and I think also very on point, very on point. Um, what do you think Janet's career has to tell us about concert dance today and ballet in particular? You know, if we could sort mm -hmm. of look, using her career as a lens, what do you think it tells us about the current landscape of concert dance and ballet in particular? Well, I think her career sheds light, first of all, on a very fascinating time period when concert dance really flourished. And we're not as aware today of, we use the term concert dance in, in more of a in, in more of a description of what came earlier on. Um, but uh, today, I uh, Everybody, everybody can dance. Everybody can choreograph. There, there, there are so many different companies, and uh, there has been so much that has already been accomplished in terms of codifying techniques and uh, experimenting with with uh, new forms of choreography. Uh, in Janet's era, concert dance was still evolving. And it's, I think it's very good to be reminded of that. And this was the era in which Graham was creating, uh, Jose Limon was creating, uh, eventually Paul Taylor and Cunningham would start to come out of that. But it was a place where you also had a lot of soloists. And today, um, the idea of the solo artist does not exist as much. Back then, Janet was a solo concert dancer, and there were others like her. So it was a very unique period when solo artists could flourish, and there were uh, many of them, and they were very diverse. So I, I think it's very useful to be able to look at that um, uh, look look at that time period thanks to Janet's career. Uh, if, if that resonates with you, Takia. Mm -hmm. It absolutely does. It absolutely does. And I think it. I think that really helps round out the point you were making about lineage and connection and just realizing that there's a universe bigger than us that's been here longer than we have. Exactly. That we have to, that we have to use as a lens to interpret our contemporary experiences. 
Exactly. Uh, and again, when we when we go and see performances today, uh, here I'm in New York, you know, what's on at the Joyce, what's, what's on at Lincoln Center, um, you know, they may be very wonderful, but uh, they, they have a context and they have a history. And uh, you would perceive them in an entirely different light if, if you looked at the performances compared with what was going on in the 50s and 60s, and you can see what developed into what. And it gives you a different appreciation of what is being performed today when you are more informed about the history. Mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's true. That that's really brilliant. Um, I know that one of the sort of biases that we have in the dance community is that among some of us, there's an assumption that the term creative process only applies to those of us who are creating studio work. Mm. And there's been, you know, among some of us, the sense that those of us who are dance historians or dance writers don't really engage in a creative process in the creation and development of our work. So Mm -hmm. I'd be really thrilled if you could describe a little bit what your creative process was like as a dance historian in developing the book. Uh, Well, the the absolute basics uh, would be... um, well, this is this is just the fundamental, I think, of any research process, which is you do all the interviews you can and all the research you can and eat as much chocolate as you can in the process. Um, but, yeah, I, I ate a lot of chocolate writing this book. Um, and in my case, I also spent a lot of time locked in my apartment in my pajamas and eating microwavable food. Um, and in terms of the creativity of it, I think there is a tremendous amount of creativity. Uh, this book, because it had so many layers I had to account for, you have um, the layer of African-American studies, you have the layer of of women's history, uh, and and others. It's like a lasagna as opposed to a book. You just keep layering on and on, and one of the creative parts was figuring out how to arrange those layers. Uh, Also, as the book begins with Janet's autobiographical chapters, and then the rest is my biographical research and work, uh, well, how do I get that balance? How do I make one flow into the other? And I ended up with an intermission section between the two. There were definitely a lot of creative challenges uh, just regarding that alone and wondering how it would be received. It really did feel like a huge creative experiment that would succeed or fall on its face. Um, And I think that a lot of creativity is required just in how one presents facts and that's a real behind-the-scenes thing that maybe people don't think about when they read the work of uh, dance historians and so forth uh, and other academics. But how do you make facts accessible to someone who's maybe not so familiar with your subject? What kinds of words do you use? Um, how many adjectives do you throw in? Uh, how much technical terminology? Uh, so it's... There's always something creative to me in in this process because um, there there are going to be multiple challenges that keep coming up, and the problem solving inevitably makes you feel that you have to think outside the box. Uh, at least that was my experience. I think that's really useful. I don't know if um, that answered your question, but I hope it did. Oh no, I think I think that's really useful. I mean, for for me as an emerging writer, I think about my own process as sort of like making a quilt, mm-hmm. or 
or weaving together, you know, these, these disparate threads when you're, particularly when you're working with primary sources, uh, oh, which yeah. might, you know, which might be everything from a costume to a cor- uh, you know, a letter to um, any kind of cultural document, playbills, um, posters, flyers. You have all of these materials, and then you have interview data that you're trying to sort of put together in a unique bricolage. Um, you know, being a dance historian is not the same as being a, a, a journalist in that way. We're not just, you know, we're not just reporting facts. Exactly. Yeah. We are weaving together a complex picture such that even if someone else had all of the materials that you had in putting together Night's Dancer, I'm sure that they could not have written this book. Well, I, I, th- I think everybody would would have their own uh, take on take on the material and idea for problem solving, um, and uh, yeah, I I think I wrote in the book too that it didn't even feel like I was writing a book. I felt like I was building a work of architecture, um, and and adding on a room here and and uh, a tower there and and so on and so forth uh, because. It, it didn't at some point feel like an exercise in writing. It felt like I was creating something that was completely different. Uh, so anyway, that, that that was the experience for this one. That's wonderful. And I really um, thank you for being so transparent about that and be willing, being willing to share that with our listeners, that insight in terms of, you know, the idea that working as a dance writer, working as a dance historian does really require something of you in terms of being willing to give into some kind of creative process that is about building, developing, scaffolding, so that the architecture metaphor is definitely something that resonates with me. Mm, good, yeah. Well, can you tell us what you're working on now or perhaps what our listeners can expect from you in the near future? Well, right now uh, I'm working on, first of all, still surviving this book. When you when you get a book published, you think it's going to be all over, but that's not true. You still have to market it and publicize it, and it really goes on and on. And so I am still brainstorming about creative ways to keep getting the message out, and that can be really time consuming in its in itself. How how to read how to reach the populations that really need the book. Uh, I expect that kind of thing will go on for some time because new ideas will come to me, and there will be. Occasions that come up, come up. For instance, we have uh, Black History Month coming up in February, Women's History Month coming up in March, and that's going to be every year. So I will be called upon somehow to try to send the word out for things like that. Uh, so that's already something I'm working on now. And I'm also thinking of ideas of what to possibly write about next. Uh, these books can be really time-consuming, so it's uh, rather unnerving to think of doing yet another one. But um, this was really such a wonderful adventure, and I feel that it really did contribute something uh, to the to the world of not just scholarship, but... Um, uh, to the world of, of dance in general that uh, I almost feel, gosh, I, I, I need to keep doing this at least one more time. So 
trying to find a subject that might be a natural transition from this book, um, if that seems like the right thing to do. So I'm I'm mulling it over. Well, that sounds great. And just know that you have the support here of the New Books Network dance channel. And should you get another book out, know that we'll be here to talk to you and interview you about whatever is coming next. Oh, excellent. I'm counting on that. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Takia. This was lovely. You've been listening to an interview with Yael Tamar Lewin, author of Night's Dancer, The Life of Janet Collins, published by Wesleyan University Press. The book is available now in hardcover from local booksellers and online retailers who also feature an ebook version. I'm Takia Nuramin, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the New Books Network Dance Channel. Thanks for listening and keep on reading.